please turn in them to the book of Jude. Next week we'll conclude our study going through the book of Jude. And then one of my favorite seasons of the year, our season of Advent, as we prepare to celebrate uh, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us and doing the work that we just celebrated in the Lord's Supper. So we've covered the who, the what, and the why, and this morning we cover the how. In verses 1 and 2, we learned who we are in Christ, that as believers in Jesus, we are called, loved, and kept. We are called into this faith. We are loved with a regenerating and unconditional love, and we are kept in the faith for and by Jesus. And knowing who we are in Christ helps us as we are called upon to do what verses 3 and 4 tell us to do, which is to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. To fight to believe the gospel no matter what's happening around us. To fight the good fight of faith. To strive to preserve the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And to fight for our fidelity to that faith. Then last week we covered the why as Jude described those who were trying to creep into the church of that day and pervert the faith. He says that they were ungodly people, defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, and blaspheming all that they did not understand. He concluded in verse 16 by saying, These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And as a result of their ungodliness and their false teaching, Jude was very careful to tell us that they deserve the judgment that's coming for them. And so last week was a heavy passage. It was a a lot about the judgment of God, the gloomy darkness, he said, that is reserved for these forever, the punishment of eternal fire, as he referred to it. That was heavy. And, and Jude's readers, after reading that, would have been understandably sobered by the reality of the judgment that these interlopers who had crept into the church deserved. But now, beginning with verse 17, Jude transitions again to a focus on his readers. He says, beginning in verse 17, but you must remember, beloved... And so he shifts his focus now in this passage that we'll cover this morning away from the false teachers and to the people in the churches to whom he is writing. And because of that, the focus shifts to you and I now. The focus shifts to us. Based on who we are in Christ, that we are called, loved, and kept. And in light of the very real exhortation that Jude has given to you and I to contend for the faith and in light of the very real presence of false teachers what are we to do and Jude answers that question now in this morning's passage let's read Jude beginning in verse 17 continuing to verse 23 but you must remember beloved the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will come scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, 
worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Let's pray. Our Father, we return thanks to you for the privilege of gathering with your people, with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, to magnify your name, to lift high your name. And Father, we're so thankful that you have given us this book that we hold in our hands. Father, we thank you that you have preserved it throughout the ages such that we can trust and know with full confidence that this is your very breath to us, given for our edification as we encounter you on its pages. We come to grips with the reality of our own depravity and the incredible plan of redemption that you have made for sinful people like us to be reconciled to you. Father, we ask that you speak to us from this passage and that you would use this passage, Father, to, to form us as into a people who will bring you glory in and through our faith family. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in these seven verses that we're looking at this morning, Jude gives his readers three commands or three groups of commands as a result of all that he said up to this point. In other words, because of who you are in Christ, you're called, loved, and kept. And as a result of the exhortation to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, because there are some ungodly false teachers who have crept in and have influence, are trying to pervert the faith and lead you astray, in light of all this, as a result of all of this, Jude tells them to do three things. And so here's our outline. He tells them to remember what the apostles told you about this. Number two, remain in the faith, remain in God's love. And number three, make sure that you rescue those who are deconstructing. So let's let that be our guide as we walk through this passage. First, he says, remember the apostles' teaching. He says in verse 17, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word predictions there literally means the word spoken beforehand, which doesn't mean that the apostles were dead at this point when Jude wrote this. We date Jude's writing to uh, sometime the early to mid-60s AD. Some of the apostles were still alive at that point. But rather he's saying what they spoke, they spoke it beforehand. In other words, before it happened. And so I think the word trans, uh, predictions here is actually a good translation of this word because in context Jude is referring to what the apostles had said about the ungodly false teachers who were going to make their way into the church and have influence there look at verse 18 he says they said to you that is the apostles they said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions and Jude is right they did say that they did teach that and they did write about that often, that false teachers would seek to find their way 
into the church and have influence with it in order to pervert the faith. In fact, of the 27 books of the New Testament, 26 of them speak about false teaching and false prophets in some way. The only outlier being the book of Philemon. And, and it, stands, it really stands to reason that the apostles would write about this because their rabbi taught them about this. The ra- their rabbi, the Lord Jesus himself, taught about this very thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 7, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So Jesus himself taught them that, that there will be wolves in sheep clothing who will try to make their way in, these false prophets. And so it's no wonder that Paul, when he met with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, says this to them in verses 29 and 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. It's no wonder that John would write in 1 John 4 verse 1, many false prophets have gone out into the world. It's no wonder that Peter would write in his second epistle, chapter 2 verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people. He's talking past tense. He's referring to the Old Testament prophets. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, he says, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And so Jude is correct here in saying that the apostles taught about these things. The apostles wrote about these things and warned about ungodly false teachers creeping in and having influence on the church. He's right about that. But what's his commandment to us? His commandment to us is to remember that that is the case, to remember that they predicted this would happen. And so why? Why does Jude give the exhortation that we should remember this? I think there are three answers to that question. First of all, so that believers like us would be encouraged by the reality of God's sovereignty. So that we would be encouraged by the reality that God is in control. Jude doesn't want to discourage his readers by telling them about these ungodly false teachers who are trying to creep in. He wants to warn them, but he doesn't want to discourage them. And so he reminds them that all of this was predicted beforehand. That, that these threats to the faith were spoken about beforehand. And so that means that we shouldn't be surprised by them because God isn't. He knew about these who would creep into the church to try to pervert the faith. He knew about that beforehand. And, and so precise was his foreknowledge that we could say that he is sovereign over it. Now, that doesn't mean that God was actively causing these false teachers to be ungodly and to teach these falsehoods, but rather that God was passively permitting them to do so, just as God is not actively causing us to rebel day in and day out. But he is permitting that to happen. And that ought to be, on the one hand, a great encouragement to us. 
because we can know that this stuff doesn't catch our God, our God off guard. He knows about this. We look up at the throne even when ungodly false teachers are trying to have influence on the church. We look up at the throne and we see that he's still sitting there. He is still in control. How much more encouraging is that picture than the picture of a God who is surprised by this? Who didn't know that it was going to happen or worse, is somehow incapable of doing anything about it. Friends, that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is sovereign. He is always in control. And knowing that he is in control, even when the ungodly false teachers creep in, reminds us that they are on a short leash, a very short leash. And he will not let them go unrestrained and have unrestricted access in the church. We can know that we will not be undone by them. Remember that as genuine followers of Jesus Christ, we are kept for and by Jesus. And he'll not let anyone snatch you out of his hand. These interlopers will accomplish whatever purpose God intended for them to to have when he permitted them to do what they're doing. But they will go no further. They are on a short leash. So on the one hand, we're encouraged by the thought that God is sovereign over these interlopers. And on the other hand, because he's sovereign over them, again, not actively causing their rebellion, but passively permitting that. But because God grants permission to these interlopers, these ungodly false teachers to creep in and try to pervert the faith, then we can know that there is a reason and there's a purpose just as there is always a reason and a purpose for everything that God does and everything that God allows. And we know enough about God to know that he causes all things to work together for the good of his children and his own glory. And so somehow these interlopers creeping into the church serves one or both of those purposes. As a result, we will either be sharpened in our faith, having been called upon to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, Or our God will be glorified by the manner in which we have sought to contend for the faith, or both. Either way, church, we can be encouraged by remembering that this was predicted to happen because God is sovereign. Second answer to that question, why does Jude exhort us to remember that the apostles wrote about this, is so that believers will be ready when it gets worse. So that you and I, as believers in Christ, will be ready when it gets worse. Jude writes here that the apostles had said that in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Now, Bible scholars will tell us that the phrase in the last time or these last days does not refer to some future epoch of time, but rather refers to the current church age. The last days began when Jesus ascended to the Father, the church was established, and gospel mission began. And the last days will end when Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom. Paul says the same thing here in 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. There he writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And, And again, that was not a reference to an end time, 
but the, the latter times, in other words, the current age in which Paul was writing, because the things that Paul lists there in that verse are things that were happening in his day. He also says this in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, where Paul writes to Timothy, but understand this, Timothy, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Again, that's not an exclusive reference to the end times, but the current last days between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return. And yet, as we read these passages in context, and many others, by the way, we see that there is a general progression from bad to worse. Most Bible scholars and theologians agree that things are going to get go from bad to worse. They're going to get worse the sooner we get to Jesus' return. The ungodly will get ungodlier. The scoffer's voice will become louder. And the false teaching of the false teachers will get more false. And I don't think it takes much research on our part on current trends in our culture to see that this is already happening. Things are getting worse. The ungodly person in the 21st century makes the ungodly person of the 20th century look like a Puritan. The scoffer in the 21st century is not marginalized or ignored and disregarded, but rather platformed and celebrated. The false teachers of the 21st century are jettisoning sound doctrine that all of Christendom has accepted for over 2,000 years in favor of stuff that will just tickle the ears of the growingly progressive audience of the 21st century. We are already in the last days. Frankly, just as Jude was in his day. But also, just as Jude was warning his audience to be prepared for it to get worse, so he is reminding us that we must contend for the faith today because the attacks on the faith will only get more pronounced. And then the third reason why I think Jude exhorts his readers to remember that this was written about beforehand is so that believers will be able to identify them. And in verse 19, he gives three identifying markers or characteristics of false teachers. He says, it is these who cause divisions Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. They are first divisive. Just as we read about last week in verse 11 of Balaam and Korah in the Old Testament. They rejected authority. And they took it upon themselves to do their own thing. In the same way these false teachers were being divisive. Divisive in both their teaching and how they lived. And just as Jesus told his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, you will know them by your fruit. We will know these by their fruit. And their fruit is divisive. Their fruit is also worldly. That's the second identifying marker. He says they are worldly people. That word for worldly people literally means natural. Natural in the sense of... uh, instinctive or we could even say animalistic in other words they're governed not by any outward authority certainly not any heavenly authority because they reject that 
Rather, they are governed by their own animal instincts. They do what they want. They do what they do because they feel like they want to. It feels right to them. And then when he says thirdly here that they are devoid of the Spirit, that means that they are not Christians. They are not Christians because they do not have the Spirit of God in them. They are devoid of the Spirit. As Paul says in Romans 8, 9, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in the fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to him. And so he says that these interlopers do not have the Spirit of Christ, and so they do not belong to him. They are not Christians. And this was an identifying mark on them because that would eventually play out in both their teaching and how they live their life. And so Jude wants his readers to remember that this stuff was written about beforehand. So that, so that the believers will be encouraged by the fact that God's still in control of this. He's not caught off guard by this. He knows about this. And he's in control, even now. So the believers will be ready for when it got worse. And so that believers will be able to identify who they are when they saw them in the church. Remember the apostles' teaching. And then the second overarching command in this passage is to remain in God's love. To remain in God's love. If we look at the grammatical structure of verses 20 and 21, we see that there's only one imperative verb here. Imperative verbs are commands. They tell us what to do. And that one imperative verb is, has three modifiers, three participles modifying that verb. Participles modify verbs. And if it's, a, if it's an imperative verb telling us what to do, then the participles tell us how to do it, how to obey that command. It's just like with the Great Commission in Matthew 28. There, there is one imperative verb. That is to make disciples. And that imperative verb is modified by three participles. Going, baptizing, and teaching. And so how are we to make disciples? By going to them, by baptizing them, and by teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. We find the very same grammatical structure here in verses 20 and 21. There is one imperative verb. And the one imperative verb is to keep yourselves in the love of God. Modified by three participles. How are we to do that? By building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, and waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So let's deal with the command first. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, if you've been paying attention as we walk through the book of Jude, that might come across as an odd command. Because of what we've already been told. In verse 1, we were told that as believers in Christ who have come to faith in Jesus, repented of our sins, and trusted in his finished work on the cross as our only hope, we are kept for and by Jesus. And all of those things in verse 1 are God's actions, not ours. We, we, we don't have a hand in that. So, so God keeps the believer in the faith. He, God keeps the believer in his family. God keeps the believer persevering to the end. And then last week, we looked at the other side of that gospel sandwich at the end of the letter in verse 24. 
where he tells us in no uncertain terms that it is God who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you as blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So it's very clear here that God is the one who keeps us. This is God's work, which is such good news. Because that's our only confidence that we will be kept to the very end. Because if it were up to us and our own efforts, none of us would remain in the faith. We would all fall away. But we don't because it is God who keeps us. And yet, Jude exhorts us here with this imperative verb to keep ourselves in the love of God. Does he mean to say that, in fact, it is up to us in our own efforts to keep ourselves in the faith? Of course not. Otherwise, we would not have verse 1 and verse 24. What he's telling us here is that our sanctification, our growth and maturity in our walk with Jesus, our perseverance in the faith, while ultimately up to God, God uses means to accomplish his will. And one of the means that our Lord employs to ensure that we are kept in the faith is to command us to keep ourselves in the love of God. In other words, we absolutely have a role in our own sanctification, in our own growth and maturity in Christ. But thanks be to God, it is not ultimately up to us that we are kept. It's similar to like what Paul says. We read from this earlier. And I thank God for how he orchestrated that. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. He writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Brother, sister, work out your own self, or as Jude would say, keep yourselves in the love of God. Put forth the effort, do the hard work to keep yourselves in the love of God, to remain in God's love, to remain and continue in the faith. But there's the other verse, verse 13, that is such good news. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So are we responsible to participate in our being kept in the faith? Yes. Are we ultimately held responsible? Is it finally up to us in our own efforts to be kept in the faith? No. Because as we work out our own salvation... It is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so how do we do that? How do we do do our part, our role, our keeping ourselves in the love of God? Well, that's where the three participles come into play as he seeks to answer that question. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? First, by building ourselves up in our most holy faith. In other words, by growing in grace, by growing in our knowledge of the word, by growing in our knowledge of God. And how do we do that? By reading the Bible, by believing the Bible, 
by doing the Bible, obeying what it says, by fighting against indwelling sin, by learning to trust in our God in any and every circumstance, no matter how difficult it might get, to remember that He is present with us, that He is our help and our hope, our rock and our fortress. And to do this while leaning on the body of Christ. Note here that all of these pronouns are plural. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. There is a dependence on the community of God's people that is assumed by Jude here. Because we absolutely need one another if we are to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. Second way we do this, he says, praying in the Spirit. This is not a reference to speaking in tongues, but rather having a genuine, authentic, intimate relationship with our God, with our Father, wherein we, we, we commune with Him regularly and speak with Him often. Praying demonstrates our dependence on God. And, and church, if we're not praying, if we're not a praying people, then that demonstrates that we think that we're not dependent on Him and that we don't need Him, which we know is a lie. Prayer is absolutely essential if we are to keep ourselves in the love of God. Paul writes in Ephesians six eighteen, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep yourselves alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. How can we hope to grow in grace? How can we hope to keep ourselves in the love of God if we don't have a healthy, vibrant, and growing prayer life where we speak with our Father as if he's there because he is. What a blood-bought privilege it is for us. And how can we hope to keep ourselves in the love of God if we don't take advantage of that? Yesterday, uh, my wife and I celebrated 34 years of wedded bliss. 34 years. She is my best friend. And I enjoy speaking with Nobody else on the face of the earth more than I do with her. But let's just say, I won't do this, promise. But let's just say that beginning with the first day of the 35th year, I decided to no longer speak with her. No longer talk with her. How could I hope to remain in her love? Church, how can we hope to remain in the love of God if we don't have a growing and vibrant prayer life with our father and then thirdly we keep ourselves in the love of god by waiting for the mercy of the lord jesus christ that leads to eternal life he says in verse 21 this means that we wait for his return we wait for him to come back as we live in the present plagued by indwelling sin plagued by the sin of others around us in the world as we seek to grow in grace, as we seek to keep ourselves in the love of God, 
as we keep to seek to remain in the faith, as we labor towards these ends, church, our focus is on future glory. As Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. They're not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And Jude here specifically identifies this future glory in terms of the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So while these ungodly false teachers will receive the judgment that Jude spoke about in verses 5 through 16, believers in Christ will receive mercy. See, grace is when we get what we don't deserve. We don't deserve forgiveness. We we don't deserve eternal life. We don't deserve to be reconciled back to the Father. Mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. And what we do deserve is the very same judgment that Jude talks about that these ungodly false teachers will receive one day. We deserve that very same judgment But we don't get that judgment because God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to receive that judgment for us, to take on himself the debt that we owe so that by grace through faith in Jesus, we don't get what we deserve. Instead, we get mercy. And so we we labor today. We contend for the faith today. We strive to keep ourselves in the love of God today as we fix our eyes on tomorrow and the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so we keep ourselves in the love of God as we wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ upon his return. So number one command here, remember that this stuff was spoken about beforehand. God's in control. Secondly, remain in God's love. By building yourselves up in the faith, praying in the Spirit, and waiting for the mercy of Jesus Christ. And then the third command here is to rescue those who are deconstructing. Rescue those who are deconstructing. When the ungodly false teachers creep in, they will have influence on some. And Jude tells us here what to do about that. In verses 22 and 23, he says, Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Jude addresses three different groups of people here who have been influenced by these interlopers into the church. And I'll refer to them as doubters, dabblers, and degenerates. And all three of these exist on a spectrum of those who are in the process of deconstructing their faith. Deconstructing the faith has become a popular buzzword for it, but it simply refers to those who have stopped believing. But this deconstruction doesn't happen overnight. It's a, it's a process. It's a process of leaning into sin and leaning away from the faith once delivered to the saints. And it starts with doubting. And Jew says in verse 20, have mercy on those who doubt. What does it mean to have mercy on those who doubt? Well, it doesn't mean don't answer their questions. 
It doesn't mean don't oppose the false teaching that they're listening to. That goes to the very heart of what it means to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Rather, he says, have mercy on those who doubt. In other words, don't don't judge them. Don't crucify them. Don't write them off as if they're unreachable. But rather, show them mercy. Be patient with them as they struggle with doubts and seek to reclaim them with gentleness. I think this is part of what Paul was talking to Timothy about as he was talking to him about those who were bringing in controversies to the church and breeding quarrels in the church. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 25, and the Lord's servant, speaking, speaking about Timothy, like, Timothy, you're the Lord's servant, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. I think that's what Jude is after here in verse 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. Answer their questions patiently. Oppose the false teaching that they're listening to with clarity, but also with gentleness in hopes that God would, in fact, grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So have mercy on the doubters. And then he says at the beginning of verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. These are the dabblers. They're not just doubting. They have begun to dabble into these false teachings. And they need to be snatched out of the fire because, in fact, they are in the fire. Church, our brothers and sisters who have begun to dabble in false teachings or have given themselves to ungodliness representative of the fact that they are not truly believing what they say they believe, they need us desperately as their brothers and sisters to be willing to go after them and snatch them out of the fire. So with doubters, we reclaim them with gentleness. With dabblers, we retrieve them with a sense of urgency. If they stay in the fire, they're going to get badly burned. And so we must retrieve them from the fire, snatch them out of the fire, he says, with a sense of urgency. This is not the person who's just begun to wrestle with doubts about the sufficiency of Scripture or God's sovereignty. But rather, this is the person who's now reading a book by Joel Osteen. This is the person who now is watching on YouTube a series by Joyce Meyer. This is a person who is now writing a check out to Kenneth Copeland. They have begun to dabble in false doctrine. And so our efforts to rescue them need to be amped up. There needs to be a sense of urgency in our efforts to oppose the teaching that they've begun to dabble in. Dabblers aren't going to contend. Here, listen. Dabblers are not going to contend for the faith on their own. Rather, we can start dancing. Rather, yeah, help, help them out there. Young person, there we go. I will not take that as a word from the Lord. All right, here we go. 
Church dabblers are not going to contend for the faith on their own. And so they need us to contend for the faith on their behalf. And in so doing, we'll snatch them out of the fire. But then there's a third group. He says in the second half of verse 23, To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. These are not the doubters or the dabblers, but the degenerates. And the word degenerate is a, is a, is a word from our dictionary that means one who has thrown off all moral restraints. They've not just dabbled in false teaching. They've gone so far as to reject the God of the Bible. And now they're living like the God of the Bible is not real. And he has no authority over them in their life. They've lost their moral compass. The emphasis here at the end of verse 23 is their moral degeneracy. That all moral restraints are gone because they no longer affirm that God has any authority over them. They reject scripture and its authority over them. And they're living like it. To these, Jude says, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. In other words, rescue them from their degeneracy, but be careful not to be pulled into their degeneracy with them. Love the sinner, hate the sin. To the homosexual man or woman who has left Orthodox Christianity in their pursuit of the homosexual lifestyle, We are to love them enough to tell them the truth and to hold out the gospel to them. But we are warned to be very careful, fearful even, that in getting close to them, we don't end up compromising our faith as they have. So with the doubters, we reclaim them with gentleness. With the dabblers, we we retrieve them with a sense of urgency And with the degenerates, we retrieve them and rescue them with fear. Hating, he says, even the garment stained by the flesh. The picture here that Jude gives us of snatching someone out of the fire and the picture of garments stained with filth are pictures that are taken directly out of a story in the Old Testament. From the book of Zechariah. And the prophet Zechariah says in Zechariah chapter 3, speaking about a vision that he's given, that God gives him a vision about um, the, the high priest named Joshua. It wasn't the Joshua that Moses handed the torch to, but rather a later Joshua who was the high priest of Israel. And, and Zechariah is given a vision of Joshua the high priest being accused by Satan. Listen to what the prophecy, how the prophecy reads. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. So God showed Zechariah, Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, Bible scholars will tell us that the angel of the Lord here is, in fact, a Christophany. It is a visible manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ. This is Jesus in his pre-incarnate form. And so Zechariah is given this vision of Joshua the high priest standing before this pre-incarnate vision of Christ and then Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this, this referring to Joshua, Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? 
Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. And the angel, who is this pre-incarnate Christ, said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. What a beautiful foretaste of what Christ has done for you and I. Because we are the ones standing in the fire. Being accused by the great accuser of the brethren, that dragon, Satan. And Jesus, our Lord and Redeemer, rebukes this accuser by going to the cross and paying the debt that we owe because of our sin. And by grace through faith in Jesus, He snatches us out of the fire. And it's like a brand plucked from the fire. And then not only that, but he, he removes our filthy garments stained by our sin and re- replaces them with the pure vestments of his own righteousness. We are the ones who have been snatched out of the fire, brothers and sisters. We are the ones with filthy garments who have been given Jesus' robe of righteousness. And now he calls upon us to likewise reclaim the doubters, the dabblers and degenerates, because we were once the degenerates, with garments hopelessly stained with our own filth, and we have been given the righteous robes of our Savior. So church, what is required of us? What is required of us, given that there are ungodly false teachers seeking to pervert the faith and lead us away from the faith. We're to remember that these false teachers were written about long ago. There's nothing new under the sun. God's in control. There is no current threat to the Christian faith that has not been foreseen. God's in control. We'll never forget that. Secondly, remain in the faith. By building yourselves up, church, in your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, and waiting for the mercy of Jesus Christ to be revealed at His return. And then be committed to rescuing the doubters, the dabblers, and degenerates with mercy, urgency, and courage. Knowing that this is what we were, and this is what we would be, If God had not defeated our accuser, snatched us out of the fire, and put on us the pure vestments of his righteousness. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the reminder that you are in control, that none of this escapes your notice, that you're not surprised by the attacks on the faith that we see and feel in our 21st century culture you know about it and somehow in your divine sovereignty you're using it to sharpen us in our faith and to bring glory to your name and so we ask that you would continue to sustain us through it and father we're thankful that as we seek to remain in the faith as we seek to build ourselves up and 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 seek to grow in our 
practice of the spiritual disciplines and leaning on one another in the body of Christ to grow in our faith, we are reminded, Father, that ultimately our being kept in the faith is not up to us. We are thankful for our role. We're, we ask that you would grant us grace and strength and courage to, to be faithful to that role, but we are thankful, Father, that if we are yours, you will keep us. But Father, we do ask that you would give us courage and strength as we seek to be rescuers of those who are doubting or dabbling, who have gone full bore into false doctrines and ungodliness. Give us the courage to go after them with the strength and hope of the gospel. And Father, may you do your work of reclaiming sinners back to yourself. And we pray that all of this would be done, Father, by your grace and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.